Everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Docapil. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by STOA alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing Shusako Indo's 1966 novel, Silence. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strung. So one of our listeners, Camille, writes, Hey guys, thanks so much for making this podcast. I found it both helpful and enjoyable. I would love for you to discuss Shusako Inda's silence, since it's a hard topic in which to find hope. I haven't actually read it, but that's what I gleaned from summaries and reviews. So you I went ahead wrong. and read, read this book. Um, what did you say? I said she's not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely hard. So we're going to do a lot of digging here. Um, I went ahead and read the book. Uh, Sophie watched the movie. I haven't watched the movie. And Sophie hasn't read the book. So yeah. <laughs> we will just combine our minds together and, and see how how this turns out. Uh, so first, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Shusako Endo. And then we'll dive a little bit into the plot of the story, some themes Hopefully make it some, um, we'll get to some Mars Hill moment somewhere, somewhere along the way. Yeah, hopefully. That's the hope. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, Shusako Endo, he is a Japanese author. He was born in 1921. He converted to Catholicism at the age of 11. Um, But the book itself is not autobiographical. It's set in 17th century Japan, written from the perspective of Jesuit Portuguese missionaries um, who went on mission trips to Japan during that time. It was one of Ed Japan's earlier ex- early exposures to Christianity, and that's important for looking at the book as a whole. First of all, uh, the book originally is written in Japanese, but most of the characters in the book are speaking, uh, are speaking well, they would have been, been speaking Portuguese, Spanish. Or Portuguese. Mm-hmm. I think there's some Spanish mixed in there, too. Um, but yeah, they would have been speaking Portuguese. So it's kind of like how in every single um, uh, uh, historical show, everyone is speaking British English, no matter whether they're in Russia or France or, you know, the, the 11th century or whatever. Um, I mean, it's it, it's... It that's that that's the original audience. So we're reading a translation. I'm reading a translation. So that's going to that that's a little bit of a disclaimer there. There may be our problems in our interpretation just from the get go. Um, but anyway, the, here's our here's our summary of what this story is about. So there's a couple characters: Father Rodriguez and Garp. Rodriguez is the main character. And they've come to Japan. They're former students of the priest Ferreira. Ferreira. I'm going to get all butcher all the names, whatever. <laughs> Father Ferreira, he comes, they come to Japan um, in a covert route through Macau, China. And just as the story has opened up, we've learned some pretty disturbing news. We've learned that Father Ferreira has apostatized. 
Um, that is, he has denied the faith under the weight of Japanese persecution. And Father Rodriguez and Garp are coming in with this kind of... Um, with a lot of with a lot of reservations in mind because they everyone is pretty shocked that Ferreira has done this and this is kind of what this book is going to be about as a whole we're we're dealing with what do we do with Christians after under the weight of persecution they have either denied the faith um, or in this case they trample on the fumi and the fumi is the 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 uh, what What's what's the English word for that? Um, it's like an image. It's basically an icon, but it's made out of stone. And it's not painted, from my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And so they're Jesuit Catholic priests. So trampling on the fumi is something that uh, is very has a lot of significance for them. As and that's what most of this is centered around. Um, so a couple other characters, Kichijiro, Kichijiro, who is a Japanese peasant, who is this uh, this sort of alcoholic guide who really made me think of Smeagol. Um, and I think that's sort of interesting. I Probably there's some archetype going on there. Um, and they don't really trust him, but he's the only person who can get him around in Japan. And then there's Inoue, uh, a person who has a reputation. And Inoue is this... Um, Inoue is this is one of the head persecutors of the of the Christian missionaries, and he has a reputation for being extremely cruel and devilish. Um, and so they're going around under the guidance of Kichijiro, and nobody really trusts him because he's described as sort of servile and sneaky, um, although they don't really know whether he is an honest, uh, converted Christian or whether he's merely kind of living in fear or that sort of thing. Um and so a lot of this is written from the perspective of Rodriguez, who um, is struggling constantly with his faith as he watches his fellow Christian brothers and sisters uh, be persecuted in pretty graphic and horrible ways. And obviously the book being called Silence, what the major theme of this book is the idea of God simply not being present or not rewarding the Christians who have suffered in such terrible circumstances um, in, in Japan. And so he emphasizes a lot whether the, the, the silence of God, and that's, that's a big theme here. I'm going to sort of skip over the, the graphic descriptions of, of the manner of Japanese persecution, in, uh, unless, unless you want to talk about that a little bit, Sophie. Um, just for the, we might have to put on some, a listener disclaimer if we, if we talked about it in too much detail. Yeah. Um, suffice it to say, I don't think we really need to go into lots of, lots of the specific details. Um, except that I don't, I don't know what it would be like reading the book, but putting it into film form is pretty disturbing. Um, if you're thinking about watching this film, it's very well done. I thought it was a really good movie but oh my gosh <laughs> hard to watch and the methods of torture are pretty difficult um and it it makes the story work because you have to understand why someone would give up a, a very real faith 
or at least, well, the question, the whole question is whether he actually gives up his faith by, by apostatizing in the end. But the, the torture has to be real for that to be a real dilemma. And I'm sure the book delivers on that, but the movie definitely does with, with the depictions. But no, I don't think we need to go into the specific details of the, the manners of torture. Well, I'll tell you my sort of sense about the, the sort of atmosphere that I got from reading the book. You know, C.S. Lewis said that when it comes to reading a book, the, one of the most important things is atmosphere. And, well, the major atmosphere I got from reading this is just sleepiness, lethargy, a weird dream space. And that for that reason, it actually was a little bit difficult for me to kind of get my head into it. Obviously, if I was reading the watching the movie, it would probably be a much more visceral experience. But for me, it was just kind of like I was almost like inside the the mind of Rodriguez and what Rodriguez's mind is almost um, in some sort of trance. And one of the things that he constantly meditates on is the fact that um, <clears throat> his experience as being a persecuted martyr in Japan is extremely uh, underwhelming. And, you know, they're just in this really hot day in July and they're just like everyone is tired. And and he always emphasizes um, how um, underwhelming and, and underdramatic everything is. And a lot, not a whole lot happens. It's more like, it's more like the manner of persecution. You know, some of the Christians are tied to posts and let out. Um, they're, they're, they're put on uh, out and into sea and they're allowed the tide, the tide comes in while they're tied to these posts and they're just slowly drowned. And so it doesn't, people don't go out in fire and brimstone the way that maybe he would have pictured it in his mind and the way Christians of the past are heralded and praised um, for for being persecuted in this way. They don't go out with a bang. They don't go out with a bang, as T.S. Eliot would say, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And that's yeah. kind of the way it the way it feels. And so it almost is kind of like a marathon to go through and just read this like kind of dreary atmosphere that they're that he's constantly in. Um, but I think that that's a good segue into one of the major themes in this book. And one of the things that is repeatedly emphasized is what people uh, is what people call the swamp of Japan. And so when uh, Rodriguez is having conversations with the characters in this in this book and they're criticizing him for his faith, they're saying, you know, it's not really we don't really have a problem with Christianity necessarily we just don't think christianity works here and that's one of shusako indo's main arguments is that he's saying that you know whatever christianity if christianity is going to have any kind of hope in japan that something needs to be radically changed about it and that may be that may be problematic uh in terms of like what do you mean by changing christianity but he's certainly identifying he knows the way Japanese culture works. And so what he's saying is that, you know, there's a certain there's a certain quality to Japan that just makes it very difficult for Christianity to to bloom, at least from his perspective. And so that's the con that's why we have constant references to Japan being a swamp. And we get that kind of feel definitely atmospherically, this sense of swamp. And so 
these people are trying to put in kind of like inseminate or plant the seeds of Christianity. And one can only think of that parable of the sower where it's the seed that falls on on ground that that gets choked up and and it or uh let's see yeah they have the they fall by the side of the road or something you know it's it's not good ground for christianity to thrive in and so what are we supposed to do that do with that i think that one of the difficult things that that presents is the idea that maybe christianity isn't a universal religion as as it claims and maybe it's should be relegated to the culture in which it, uh, which it is most uh, congenial to. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's a scene in in the movie. So the first time that Rodriguez meets Father Ferreira, uh, who's played by Liam Neeson, who does a good job. Um, he shows up and he he definitely makes it sound like sort of the thing that broke him or the thing that really convinced him that there was no good to be done here in the form of Christianity. And I should say also, I'm not sure how it is in the book, but the movie definitely suggests that Father Ferreira never truly gave up his faith. He just gave up on the notion that Japan could be swayed, that there could be a real church in Japan. And... He specifies that the thing that convinced him was when he realized that the Japanese, his Japanese parishioners were understanding Christianity and understanding the gospel in a way that he, that wasn't true. Um, and he mentioned specifically that they equate the idea of the son of God with the actual son because they don't have a conception of, of the supernatural or of God outside of nature. And so for, for the Christian or for uh, Orthodox Christianity, the Son of God rises once. He rises on the third day. But for the Japanese, the Son of, the son of God rises every day because they equate him with the Son. Um, and that's really the thing that convinces him that Christianity isn't something that can really thrive or grow in Japan. And then ultimately, through Ferreira, that's, that's sort of the thing that convinces Rodriguez to, among other things, to to trample on on the Fumi and to to give up his faith. Um, I have a I have a direct quote from this. This is Father Ferreira speaking to Rodriguez on this subject. Um, the, the very word Deus, the Japanese freely changed to Dainichi, the Great Sun. To the Japanese who adored the Sun, the pronunciation of De, Deus and Dainichi were, was almost the same. So he says, "You understand nothing." From the beginning, those same Japanese who confused Deus and Dainichi uh, twisted and changed our god and began to create something different. Even when the confusion of vocabulary disappeared, the twisting and changing secretly continued. Even in the glorious missionary period, you mentioned the Japanese did not believe in the Christian god, but in their own distortion. So what, it, what we're dealing with a lot is actually issues of translation and that's another interesting problem um which i think is actually a problem that comes up almost every single time there's any kind of mission effort on the part of christians um for example there was a a, a story of the wickliffe bible translators and they were in some country i believe it was south america but i'm not sure in which they were trying to um 
they were having a huge debate over whether they should translate the Bible uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am the bread of life to I am the potato of life because bread of life, bread is this, was the staple of food, obviously, of uh, the Jews at that time, the first century Jews, but the staple f- uh, uh, food of this tribe was a potato. So, you know, where do we draw the line? Do we in between letter of the law and spirit of the law? And should we actually change? Because then, then we're actually maybe becoming less educationally informed in the actual culture to which the New Testament emerged out of. And so should we educate these people about the culture that the New Testament is growing out of? Or should we focus on the actual message, whereas that Jesus is, you know, our lifeblood, therefore we should focus on the staple food of that culture? Or you could do that with everything. Like, should you say for China, like, I am the rice of life? Or I don't know what you say in Mm -hmm. America, I'm the burger of life. (laughs) Uh, We don't have any special foods, so that's that's our problem. Yeah. Um, Well, I also want to say that, so... Part of the problem, I think, with Rodriguez's outreach in Japan is that he and actually those who come before him didn't do a good job of really first understanding the Japanese language and Japanese culture before trying to evangelize. Um, In the movie, at least, all the masses that they do are done in Latin. And there's this sense that the people actually don't understand what's happening, which, you know, you could have a discussion about how important it is to comprehend the words for what's going on there, especially for the Catholic mind, which obviously Endo is Catholic. Um, But he doesn't try to understand the culture. And there's a scene also, again, in the movie, where the interpreter, who's the same character who... uh, so there's, there's this interpreter character who criticizes Jesuit missionaries for not learning the Japanese language or, or understanding the Japanese culture. And he actually Mars Hill's Buddhism for Rodriguez at one point. <laughs> he says, um, this is a way in which Christianity and Buddhism are the same or are similar in ways in which our God are really the same. And there's this sense that you get that maybe the the Japanese actually part of the reason for their hostility is that they really think that Christianity and Buddhism aren't that different. And they're a little offended <laughs> that someone would say, come in and say, no, everything you're doing is wrong. Everything you believe is wrong. And that Rodriguez is not doing what Paul does to the Greeks, that he doesn't incorporate some of their culture, that he doesn't speak to them in their language. And that that's part of the problem. That that's part of the mistake that he makes. Yeah, actually, this is a very interesting kind of Mars Hill moment, especially when you take um, the, the the confusion between uh, Deus and Dainichi, um, which in part it was somewhat what Paul was doing, but he was saying, okay, here's an unknown god. Um, what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to show you in full. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts with the starting point is this pagan god, uh, but he does make a distinction that he's pointing towards this God. Um, this is who you're really worshiping when you worship this person. Um, and it's not always clear. Um, you know, we've had all sorts of conversations about this, about whether, you know, this is a moment where you need to 
uh, reject this original God in favor of something truer, or whether this God somehow needs to be transformed and redeemed into the truer God. Um, obviously, whatever happened here in Japan, they did not stick the landing. Mm-hmm. Um, because in one sense, there was almost no... Uh, the, the, the Rodriguez did no actual state didn't enter into any kind of real state of humility to actually educate himself about the culture on the one hand and to the degree that they actually did integrate the culture they did it all wrong because they did it out of ignorance and it was clear that the people who were taking the Japanese who were understanding Christianity were actually understanding their own version of Christianity and not and it wasn't even like a remotely different from their own. So it was only like a slightly modified version of the god uh, Dainichi, basically the god Dainichi with different aesthetics um, and not really getting a true understanding of the gospel. So in both counts, they, they kind of dropped the ball there. And I think that was also like, uh, yeah, I, I felt the same thing about Rodriguez. It was, that was my initial um, reaction because I don't know about you, but it seemed to me that Rodriguez did not... I didn't really connect with him. I didn't really like him too much as a character because it seemed like he kind of had a sort of sense of superiority over the Japanese peasants. And I got the sense from, at least from his internal monologues in the book, that he didn't really like them that much. You know, Mm. he Mm. was a little bit disgusted with them. I mean, he was definitely disgusted with Kichijiro. I could like, I lost count how many times he describes him as servile, like servile, slimy Kichijiro. Like he really doesn't like him. And then he talks about the peasants too. Like, oh yeah, the peasants like us, but they only like us because, because we promise a better life, um, you know, in heaven and their lives are miserable right now and they're so economically unsound and and uh they've and so what are we actually promising them so he's kind of doesn't really have a whole he's not fully sold on the ideas that he's telling them and he doesn't really think that the japanese peasants are really sincere or that they really get it and he doesn't really and you know that's one problem but the fact that he just doesn't really bothered to learn the language i thought was a serious problem and i mean yeah i think he kind of started off on the wrong foot that's really interesting that you felt like rodriguez wasn't likable in the book maybe i'll actually go read the book now because um in the film at least okay so rodriguez is played by andrew garfield who is eminently likable um so maybe that's part of it but i did not get the impression from the film that he disliked or had some sort of contempt for the Japanese peasants. Um, he definitely seemed to care for them when they got there. And also his, so Andrew Garfield is Rodriguez, uh, his partner that he goes into Japan with, um, Garupe, is played by Adam Driver, whom I also love. And both of them, I thought, were very good, likable people, and I empathized a lot with Rodriguez and with his struggle, which made the climax really impactful for me. It sounds like maybe in a way that it wasn't for you. Obviously, it was it was horrible in the sense that it was, it was disturbing and questions that I didn't want to think about, but it wasn't... Um, it, it still worked. I think it was still powerful 
because Rodriguez was portrayed in a way that I was empathetic to, even if I could see flaws in the ways that he was treating the culture or the ways that he was going about his mission. Well, I mean, like, there's this attitude of, like, uh, you know, like, the, like when Rodriguez finally meets Ferreira and he say, he sees that he's wearing a kimono and he's married a Japanese wife and he's got a Japanese name, like, his attitude towards him and the conversation that they have is that you've betrayed us. That's what Rodriguez looks, that's how Rodriguez looks to Ferreira, is like he sees that the fact that he's wearing a kimono and married a Japanese wife is like a bad thing. And that, to me, reveals a little bit of a, um, a wrong-headed mindset about this. Because for me, if I would understand it, you know, like if you're going to be a missionary, you know, go wear a kimono and, you know, marry a Japanese wife and get a Japanese name, that should be the first thing that you do. Uh, maybe not the Japanese wife thing. I mean, they're they're Catholic priests, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like, I don't see any of those things as bad things. But the fact that it's viewed that way, at least from his perspective, like, you don't get any of these. He doesn't get put on the kimono, uh, the kimono and name himself Sawana Chuan until after he apostatized. As if adopting those things is, like, a sign of his apostasy. Well, sure. I mean, I... I understand that, but also, I mean, maybe just to defend him a tiny bit, I think the, the taking a wife thing is maybe the most important element there, and I think the fact that they're priests who took a vow of celibacy is maybe the main thing there that's being violated, that's sort of the main problem. Um, and it's also true, I think, that it would be really difficult for Rodriguez at that point to separate the Japanese language and culture from his persecutors and those who have been... Like, he's he's spent a long time at this point watching these people torture his, his flock, his parishioners. So I, I, I think I have a little bit of empathy for him responding that way. I don't think it's the correct response. And, and maybe it does come from a place of, of bigotry, of not... Of, of looking down on the Japanese culture. But also, I can see feeling that way if you were in the position that he has been in at this point. Right. Well, um, so here are some, some of the uh, interesting, interesting, I guess, artistic things that, that happened in this book. First, the silence of God, obviously. Um, one of the things I was doing while I was going through the book is I was... Um, counting all the times that the book mentioned cicadas and i think i lost count at like 12 or 15 there was more than that um but cicadas are always mentioned in the book and i thought that was really interesting because they always talk about cicadas and then he talks about meanwhile god is silent uh well i mean cicadas are also famously really really loud they can get up to like 90 to 100 100 decibels or something they can actually cause ear damage um at the height of their mating season and um, and I, and they're also in, in Japanese culture there, I think they're, they're a symbol of immortality. Mm -hmm. And so I, w I wonder what's going on there, what these constant references to cicadas, it almost makes me think of, I've never heard a silence quite this loud, probably the, the most, uh, 
profound thing Taylor Swift ever wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, didn't think we would go there, but it. I mean, it just like I feel like that's kind of sort we'll of find a literary connection that makes you think. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah, there it is. Uh, <clears throat> but I, yeah, I never heard silence going the side. It's like talking about the silence of God, and yet there's like really loud cicadas all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually the funny thing so you had mentioned that the book talks about cicadas all the time and that was one of the only things i knew about this story once i was starting the movie and the movie starts and it's a black screen and the first thing you hear is really loud cicadas for probably five Mm -hmm. or ten seconds and then the title screen comes on and all the sound cuts out and it just says silence so i thought that was kind of funny that immediately cicadas were obviously there's a little bit of like irony juxtaposition that is deliberately yeah happening yeah um and i i do think so the whole idea of the world and of nature and of the japanese persecutors and the screams of the people being um that being loud which which makes the silence of God really clear. I think it's interesting because Rodriguez obviously has been praying his whole life, and there's no impression that we get that he's ever heard, in some sort of supernatural sense, the voice of God speaking out loud to him. Um, but he only notices that. He only realizes that he wants to hear that once he is surrounded by the, the noise of persecution. Um, and he, at one point, at least in the movie, after sort of the first time that he sees his fellow Christians being tortured, there's this voiceover and he says, um, I know you heard their prayers, but did you hear their screams? Where he is questioning what God is even hearing. And he says, how can I explain to them your silence? And that's sort of his first thing is not, I'm having doubts because of your silence. But how can I tell them? How can I explain to them why you were silent? And it makes me wonder what he expected. Did he go in expecting that these people would be rescued? Uh, did he? What did he think he was going to get out of persecution? It seems like maybe he expected something more abstract or glorious or more feeling like uh, saintly martyrdom than it actually than it actually feels to him. Um, and and obviously it is more difficult once you're in that position, once you actually have to grapple with the fact that horrible things happen to people, to innocent people, and God you God doesn't do anything about it. God doesn't stop it. That's the problem of evil, that's the problem of suffering, and everyone has to grapple with that at some point, or just not be awake, not really be seeing the world as it really is. But Rodriguez somehow doesn't realize that. He doesn't see the problem of evil. He doesn't recognize the problem of suffering, even when he's heard about it, until he's face-to-face with it. Which I think is one of the most real things about this story. Um, I think I think we are like that. <laughs> until we see real suffering, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, God has a plan and everything's okay. And then we have a crisis once we're faced with real suffering. And suddenly God's silence seems incomprehensible. Whereas... It, it seemed like it made sense before. Well, yeah, I think that it's entirely possible for someone to, even someone who is a Christian and a professing Christian, 
to fall into idolatry under the guise and fully believing that they are actually worshiping God uh, by constructing a false image of God and worshiping that instead. And that, I think, is probably one of the subtlest of all snares. Um, so in the screw tape letters, uh, so screw tape is trying to tempt, uh, is teaching his patient how to tempt his patient, uh, to go to hell. Uh, and he says, you know, screw tape says, you know, I convinced one guy once that God was located in a corner in his room somewhere, you know, um, so there's like, we always construct these pictures about God and those things now necessarily those need to, they, they need to fall apart. They need to die. And so, you know, in the sense that when people have their faith challenged in that way, it may not, you need not necessarily assume that that's the end all and be all of their faith. Maybe simply a certain, it may be, it may be, and they may not come back from that, but um, maybe it's just simply a false idea of who God was that needs to needs to die. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the questions that I had, and this might be kind of kind of what you were talking about, his notions of glorious martyrdom, martyrdom are fathers Father Rodriguez's uh, motivations for martyrdom pure, and I mean he seems to be kind of interested very much in glory and honor and maybe obviously this is part of me reading his internal thoughts from the book um but one of the things that he that challenges his faith is the fact that things are not as dramatic as he would like them to be uh did you get that sense at all i really didn't that was not a major theme in the film not that he's not obsessed with glory and honor but more that he's naive (laughs) Uh, is the impression that I got from from Andrew Garfield's portrayal. That he goes in thinking that he can sort of turn turn people's hearts and minds really easily. Um, and that there, there's fear involved in that, but that he doesn't really think that apostasy is an option. <laughs> um, even if it may have happened before, he doesn't think that he is. It could be weak enough to apostatize or that he his fellow christians could be or that father ferrera could be he has sort of a naive view of human psychology and how how strong people really are um but i really i didn't get the impression i don't think that it was that he was concerned with the fact that things were not glorious beyond the fact that um that the, the the torture is sort of grueling and it just goes on and on and on and on and that God is silent throughout it. And there's no uh there's no fiery furnace moment of the fourth man in the furnace and then Jesus is there and there's no um I mean there are all sorts of stories of Catholic saints where there's something uh about their death or about their martyrdom that makes it really clear that there's something supernatural in it and that just doesn't happen here but beyond that i i definitely i don't think i got the impression that he was in it for his own glory except for the fact actually i will mention this there's a fascinating scene because throughout the throughout the movie he um is interested in and thinking about this image of the face of christ that he's seen and at one point he's looking at a pool of water and he sees, and he's he's sort of getting a little deranged at this point. He sees his own face 
transform into the face of Christ that he's been imagining all this time. And he starts kind of laughing maniacally. And there's this moment of literal narcissism because it's him looking in a pool <laughs> and seeing his own face as the face of Christ. Um, so there is that arrogance there, I think, in some sense. Well, he definitely struggles with it because he says here, um, uh, so he says, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Do not abandon me anymore. Am after I am murdered, will the cicadas sing and the flies whirl their wings, inducing sleep? Do I want to be as heroic as that? And yet, am I looking for the true hidden martyrdom or just a glorious death? Is it that I want to be honored, to be prayed to, to be called a saint? So that's, I mean, that's why, and I uh, I don't know whether I can find where it, he says this elsewhere, but part of the, one of the things that he's saying when he's, looking at japan is the fact like the fact like why is it he's a little bit disappointed why is it that that people they you know the guards come and take him and they don't seem to care whether he runs away or not um and and they're not they don't really seem like they hate him they just don't like him they in fact they had this art they had this kind of uh darkly humorous conversation where you know the christianity is compared to an ugly woman like mm -hmm. never nothing like i don't want to nothing is worse than the affections of an ugly woman and it's like that's what christianity is like you're just ugly and not distasteful that's why we don't like you it's not that we disagree with you you're just ugly i mean that's their attitude towards christian so that's like part of what he's disappointed with it seems is that the fact that you know he isn't actually, he doesn't seem like he's being martyred necessarily. In fact, the people who are pressuring him to apostatize say, oh, just do it. It doesn't mean anything. It's only a formality. I don't know if they said that in the movie, but this is No, what they do a lot. They were telling. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a formality. It's not that important. Um, and so it's like he's he's unable to actually live out the narrative of martyrdom he can't be a martyr because they don't really see him as a martyr they just see him as kind of this you know weird uh interruption in their lives yeah yeah no i definitely think that theme is present um and also, this is true in the movie as well, that uh, Rodriguez, throughout the, whole, throughout the whole story, honestly, even from very early on, his attitude toward apostatizing or toward sort of taking the step of, uh, in some sort of formal way, denying your faith, is actually a lot more lax than, than his partner, than Garupe, because his, at one point... Um, early on, sort of one of the first persecutions that happens, there are these four hostages that the Japanese are, are taking, and before they leave, they ask Rodriguez, as their priest, um, if they tell us to, to trample on the Fumi, should we do it? And he says, trample, trample, it's all right to trample. He tells them that's okay. And his partner is shocked and says, no, you must pray for courage, you can't do that. Um... And then when they're all faced with the food, they actually all step on it. That's the first thing they do. And then they're asked to spit on the cross and call uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary a whore, and they can't do it. 
Um, and that's the thing that makes it clear that they're Christians. But before that, so, so even from the very beginning, Rodriguez is sort of maybe questioning how bad it really is to apostatize. And so we get this sense that in the end, when he's finally faced with the decision of apostatizing, he's actually, the, the Christians who are being tortured in front of him, because he's not really ever tortured himself, they're all being tortured and he actually yells at them, apostatize, why don't you apostatize? And then Father Ferreira says, they have apostatized many times over, they're here for you. And that's the thing that gets Rodriguez. But he still holds out for so long. And it's not, it seems like maybe the problem is not so much that he thinks the actual act of denying the faith is the problem. Maybe he thinks that the, it's, it's it would be, it would hurt his pride. <laughs> it would mean breaking or it would mean bending to these people. That the problem is not the act of denial. The problem is the act of denying himself. Which would maybe make sense out of why narratively Endo almost seems to portray the act of apostasy as an act of love because it's an act of denying himself. It's an act of denying his own pride. And I don't know if I agree with that, well, see, but that, I think it's interesting. Well, so that's why I was challenging his motivations for martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, so T.S. Eliot wrote a play called Murder of the Cathedral, which is a historical verse drama about the uh, martyrdom of Thomas Beckett. And Thomas Beckett challenged the authority of the king, and he's in the scene happens in a cathedral, the cathedral, and he's waiting for the king's men to come and take him. And a series of tempters come and talk to him, and 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 they have various have their different motivations for tempting him. So the first one tempts him to sensual pleasure, to kind of just you know back to the good old days of the king and obviously thomas beckett it was easy for him to dismiss that and then the second one is temptations towards power the second tempter tempts him towards power maybe he could you know strike a deal with the king and then the third temptation is temptation towards treachery which is like you know more closer to judas right mm -hmm. and then the fourth tempter a fourth tempter comes and then thomas beckett's really surprised i thought there were only three tempters why is there four tempters and the fourth tempter says thomas be a martyr because if you get killed in the name of the church and of christianity then you can rule the grave from death and then thomas beckett writes well elliot writes in the words of thomas beckett one of his most famous lines the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So, um, the temptation of martyrdom, the temptation to be a martyr for the sake of being a martyr, is the temptation of spiritual pride or self-righteousness, which Christians have warned in the Bible and you know throughout history as being one of the most dangerous of sins. The sins of the mind are the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I absolutely think that's true. And I think that that's what makes the decision that Rodriguez makes. I think that the, the decision that Rodriguez makes to step on, step on the image of Christ, to trample on it, is really interesting. And I want to talk for a second about the way that scene works because I did look this up. I did my research. This is the same in both, both the movie and the book um, that right before Rodriguez steps on the image of Christ, 
in his head, the image of Christ speaks to him, which is really interesting, first of all, because what the image of Christ says is fascinating and also a little disturbing for a Christian. And also because theoretically that's God breaking his silence because it's, it's God speaking to him, at least in his mind. Uh, So the passage from the book is, I too stood on the sacred image for a moment. This foot was on his face. It was on the face of the man who had been ever in my thoughts on the face that was before me on the mountains in my wanderings, in prison, on the best and most beautiful face that any man can ever know, on the face of him whom I have always longed to love. Even now that face is looking at me with eyes of pity from the plaque rubbed flat by many feet. Trample, said those compassionate eyes. Trample, your foot suffers in pain. It must suffer like all the feet that have stepped on this plaque. But that pain alone is enough. I understand your pain and your suffering. It is for that reason that I am here. Rodriguez says, Lord, I resented your silence. And then the voice of Christ says, I I was not silent. I suffered beside you. So what Christ says, which is fascinating to me in the context of this story, is Christ is saying, I came came to earth to be trampled by men. And they say that more explicitly in in the film version of that same monologue that Christ says. Um, And that... The, the voice of Christ in his head, at least, suggests that the act of apostasy is an act of self-denial, which makes it an act of love in this context. And it doesn't say that would be true in every context, but I think that the it seems like both the movie and the book that this story is portraying that particular act as something more heroic, maybe, than it is wrong than it is true denial which you could have a conversation about whether or not that's over privatizing christianity but that that take on the action or that moment is really interesting to me and i think raises a question that would be very difficult to answer the moral dilemma is a little too complicated i think to have a good answer to it well, you used the word privatizing, which I think was interesting. I mean, obviously, a huge conversation that's happening here is one of the things that Rodriguez is constantly insisting on is that Christianity is a universal truth. And so it shouldn't change regardless of where it ends up going. And like, to which I would say, yeah, that's that's true. There is such a thing as a universal truth. But also, and this goes back to our original problem, is like, all right, but is are the Jesuits priests the, the 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 religion or the Christianity of the Jesuit priests in Portugal Spain manifest itself in the most universal po- way possible to the extent that it can be imported into implanted into any other culture virtually unchanged and 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 still remain true I mean the the fact that you know Latin is the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church made sense at a certain time when you know when 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 Saint Jerome first wrote their is the Latin Vulgate for instance, um, but once languages and cultures and, and and countries evolved, then obviously you know the universal tr- truth needs to manifest itself in a different way. I mean, it doesn't mean that the truth changes; it just means that 
like Aristotle rhetor- Aristotle's rhetorical situation changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to find a different way to to address those things. Um. So so I guess calling it I, there is an element I guess of privatization, you know, which I think is 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 probably an accurate way of thinking about it, and there are times when you know the way that you should act in fact i mean that's what that's what the you know paul says i think it's paul who says you know when you're faced with persecution and you're held before the tribunal then the holy spirit will tell you what to say yep you know he doesn't tell you to you know like well if you just you know memorize scriptures which you should do which is a good thing then you know, you know your Bible verses and, you know, you, you know, then you'll be good. I mean, he does tell you to always be prepared to give a response for anyone who asks you what the hope that is in you. But he says, you know, when push comes to shove, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say. Yeah. And so you're going to have to decide then, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I'm actually curious whether this is true in the book. So the final scene of the movie is that Rodriguez has lived his whole life as part of, as one of the Japanese um, the people who are with him throughout the last years of his life say that he never spoke about God, he never prayed, he had completely lost his faith. But then the final scene is, after he dies, they bury him in the Buddhist way, which is put him inside, like, a casket thing and then burn it. And that his wife is the last person to see him, and she puts a little, like, note in his hands before they take him away. And the last scene of the film the last voiceover line says something like um you know they say he lost his faith something 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 uh as to that only god can answer so there's this allusion to god being silent on that subject but then we zoom in on his hands and you see that tucked inside the paper that she gave him is this little wooden cross that he's been carrying the whole time so there's both this implication that he never actually gave up his faith and that maybe his wife was Christian too, that he converted her because she gave him the cross at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know whether that's, again, too much privatization, but I do think it's interesting that Rodriguez, for whom being public about his faith is sort of a matter of personal pride, if if there's a suggestion that living out the last, you know, 40, 50 years of his life in silence about his faith is an act of self-denial that he took on to protect other people. And that whether or not objectively that was the right thing to do, that maybe there's grace for him, there's there's forgiveness, because he took on that silence as an act of love. And that he believed that that was what Christ had asked of him. Which I just think is really, again, I don't have answers for that, but I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I just think that, and maybe this is kind of, you know, I'm committing the sin of higher criticism here and like reading against the grain, which I, I, I don't like doing. I, I mean, I, but I think that there is a sense, at least from my, from my point, in my opinion, a sense that Rodriguez just doesn't quite understand Christianity. Mm-hmm or understand the gospel. And I think that that is a problem 
that he has to wrestle with not at the end of the book but from the beginning mm-hmm. like i said he started off on the wrong foot he he didn't come into this attitude of evangelism with the right attitude towards it or you know what it means to actually you know what grace actually means um and you know he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't like like what Paul does in when in 1 Corinthians 9:19 through 23 right he says to the Jews i became a Jew to win the Jews and to the Greeks you know i become a Greek and it's like uh i do all this for the sake of the gospel that i might share in its blessing you know to the weak i became weak to win the weak he's you know all and all that sort of thing um i don't see i didn't see him applying that mm-hmm. and i think that maybe Maybe there's a chance later on in a spiritual journey where he becomes to under, un, understand that in a deeper way. But maybe, I guess, like you said, in this situation at this time, maybe the right thing for him to do is to be silent, at least for a time. So <laughs> so he, he if he's going to be silent, at least for, you know, take a sabbatical and be silent, maybe that's what he needs to do in order to hear God's voice. And maybe that's what we all need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're the ones who are doing all the talking, all the talking, all the talking, and we're not going to take a step back and listen to other people, you know, like learn the language of the people around us, that's what you need to do. You have to be silent. And you have to be listen. You have to listen. So maybe there's a time, you know, some place later in his spiritual journey where he does actually break the silence and he does speak again and he does, um, and he does share the gospel. I mean, like it's implied that he did share the gospel with his wife, which I guess would mean that he wasn't entirely silent with her. Um, and so maybe he came to a place where he could, you know return to his faith in a little in a more honest and authentic way Mm -hmm. and i mean maybe that's maybe that's the hope you know yeah if there's there's hope in the book well i also think the other bit of hope that i find so part of what makes the story so heart-wrenching is not just rodriguez's story because rodriguez lives a long life and you know what what he does and his spiritual state is between him and God, right? It's up to God to judge. But there are all these people who are are tortured and who suffer and who die for Christianity. And it's clear that not all of them apostatize. Like some of them genuinely do die for the name of Christ. And I think the thing that Rodriguez misses that's so important is... He, this is, okay, so I did read, I did read part of the book, and one of the part of the book that I read um, early on, uh, Rodriguez describes this image of Christ, that's his favorite image, and in the image, Christ has his foot on a coffin. So there's this symbolic image of Christ conquering death through the resurrection of the dead, (laughs) that when you die, you don't really die. And there is this suggestion throughout the story because the, the Japanese, when they kill Christians, they make sure to burn them and keep a careful watch over them because uh, 
they have to make sure to get rid of the bones and they have to burn everybody to ashes. So they can't receive a Christian burial because the point of a Christian burial is that the body stays intact because you're looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. That that's the real hope that you have. And it's important to the Japanese that they, at least in their own minds, are thwarting that. <laughs> that there's not going to be any resurrection here. Um, and Rodriguez at no point ever comforts or um, offers the hope to his parishioners that there is resurrection, that this this is not the end, that they come back from the dead. Um, in the... Since we're getting close to Easter, I'll throw this in there, that in the Orthodox Church, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, at Easter, or they call it Pascha, um, there's a song... I guess there's a, a piece of scripture that's sung over and over and over and over again, both on Pascha itself and then for the period of Pascha that, that follows. Um, and it goes, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And upon those in the tombs bestowing life. And that's repeated over and over and over and over again because that's the hope of Easter. That's what Easter is, is Easter is resurrection. And the fact that Christ is resurrected means that you are resurrected. And that the important part of Easter, the most important part of Easter is actually not the passion. It is the resurrection on Easter. Um, and the reason that's important is it means that you also die and you also are resurrected from the dead. And Rodriguez just never, never seems to get that. He never says that for himself. He never says that for anyone else. His focus is entirely on what's happening now, what's happening to me right now, what I say and what I do right now, without recognizing the fact that the end for all of these people is resurrection. And that that resurrection is God breaking silence, that Easter is breaking silence. And he never quite gets there. Yeah, yeah it, there does seem to be sometimes in, in Christianity an emphasis on the passion more than on the resurrection. I mean, I saw that. I got that sense a little bit in the Passion of the Christ, which obviously is an artistic triumph. But, you know, like the the part where he's resurrected is just like, you know, you know, like 30 seconds at the end of the movie. And Mel Gibson did talk about making a sequel about the resurrection, but as far as I know, he hasn't made it yet. Mm -hmm. um, but that would have been very interesting to 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 see that. Um, I think that that's definitely something that we we as Christians should focus more on is is on the resurrection, the fact that that Christ is risen. So, all right. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our hour. So we thanks thank thanks thank you everyone for listening. This has been a great podcast. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. Sorry this one was so grueling. Next one will be uh, just hilarious. It'll be somehow. butterflies and unicorns. It'll be happiness. Yeah. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. Until then, friends, we'll see you in a couple weeks. I know you can see Something inside
inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you